Good morning. I picked those songs this morning that we sung for a reason. Um, one, because it's true. Um, everything that we sung, sometimes we're slain by the Lord, um, but we still have reason to bless his name. Um, we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord is good, that when we call upon him, he's there. Um, whether things are up or whether things are down. <clears throat> and so we are always to turn our eyes upon Jesus and I thought it would be good to prepare our hearts this morning with those songs because today's message is the foundation for why we can sing those songs. Um, we can sing them in spirit and in truth because it is true. Um, and we know it's true because God's word is true. Um, we know God's word is true because Jesus didn't doubt at all um, in times um, when some of us doubt, when we go through certain situations like we're going to read today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into it. Um, Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for waking us up this morning. Uh, thank you for getting us all here safely. Lord, I just pray that you'll be glorified today um, as we worship you now through the preaching and the listening uh, to your word. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts um, and that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. Um, Lord, and I pray that after today, regardless of where we find ourselves in, um, or the place that we find ourselves, um, that we will always trust your word and always keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. First in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, you know, we're in the book of Luke. Um, we're going to be in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. And that's known as, as uh, the temptation of Jesus by many people. Um, we know like chapter and verse separations in our Bible, they're good things, but also subheadings. All these things are good things, but they're not inspired by God. And so above this section in my Bible, I wrote, Not Today, Satan, <laughs> which is the, the title of this sermon. But like many passages in scripture, um, it doesn't really seem like much on the surface until you get into it and you realize there's a whole lot to unpack and there's never enough time to do so. So I'm gonna do my best. Um, but I think there's so much to learn as we read about the life of Jesus. There's so much to learn about the word of God and the God of the word. And we see Christ in many, in many settings in which his glory is revealed to us. We see him speak with power and with authority like no one else. And it says in verse 22, they marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They were astonished. They were struck by awe and wonder. Who is this man who speaks with such power? He was a carpenter, yet he raised the dead to life. He made the lame walk. He made the mute to speak. He caused the blind to see. The glory of Christ and his divinity can be seen all throughout scripture. However, Jesus, the eternal, eternal son of God, took on flesh. Jesus, who has always been God, was literally born in flesh as a man. And so at times, we also see in scripture where the glory of Christ is veiled and his humanity is then on full display. Um, it's the hypostatic union, right? R.C. Sproul would say Jesus is truly God and truly man. Ignatius of Antioch would say there is only one physician of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenerate, God and man, true life and death, son of Mary and son of God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And so there are times in scripture where we also see Jesus, again, operating in sovereignty in times like our text today where Jesus is more in a vulnerable state. A time of testing that's recorded and preserved in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark's account is the shortest. It's just a two-verse summary, and it kind of mentions this temptation in passing. And it sort of makes sense because his audience would have been Roman believers, particularly Gentiles. And so you don't have the genealogies like you have in Matthew and Luke's account. And so there's also different uh, or fewer references to Old Testament scripture and Jewish elements. And so it makes his account much shorter by default. And you can read that in Mark chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. But each account mentions the fact that Jesus was tested in the wilderness by the devil. However, both Mark and Matthew men mention the ministering of angels, which Luke didn't record. But Matthew and Luke both provide details about the temptations, but they order them differently. The second and the third temptation is actually reversed. Um, it says that Luke, or people will say that Luke's aim was to give an ordered account. But there were times where he ordered material logically rather than chronologically. Um, an example of that for those who like to take notes would be chapter 3 verse 20, where he mentions John being in prison. That actually took place later in the ministry of Jesus. And if you want to read that, you can find that in Matthew 14 and also in John chapter uh, 3. Some scholars would say that Matthew's account in uh, Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 is actually the way that it unfolded. But we're in Luke today. Now, why am I saying this? Um, many of you know that I think apologetically. Uh, Abner knows that. I think I grind his gears sometime. Uh, it's like, no, this is what it is. I'm like, I know I'm trying to think how other people think. Um, but whether it's them asking genuine questions or trying to get you to doubt God, it's important for us to understand the background of these writings that we say we believe, to study the text. And as we get to know the God of the word, we better understand the word of God. But with that being said, when you consider all three of these accounts, they're witnesses to the life of Jesus, while they might have different writers, they have a different initial audience, right? They wrote with different styles. Their testimonies are consistent in that they express a unified message inspired by the Holy Spirit. In these passages, we see the triumph of Jesus over the devil. We also see the absolute necessity of being filled and led by the Spirit of God and his word. We also see the reliability, the sufficiency, and the redemptive fulfillment of uh, of scripture. Now this text doesn't just teach us how to have triumph over the devil in this life, but it teaches us about the one in whom we have eternal victory over Satan and even greater through whom we are reconciled to the Father and we know that is Jesus. Um, so we're going to read again uh, Luke 4 verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If then, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. 
And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now prior to chapter 4, we see John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, crying out in the wilderness for people to see the salvation of God, teaching them about repentance, about God's wrath and his humility. And then he practices humility by comparing himself to the Christ. He says, I baptize with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then to fulfill scripture, Jesus is then baptized by John. And we see two amazing things happen in the text. First, it says the Holy Spirit descends in bodily form, according to verse 22 of chapter 3. And then second, the Father from his throne in heaven speaks for everyone to hear. You are my son with you. I am well pleased. Here we have each person in the Trinity, distinct from one another in this one passage, debunking the idea of a God that simply manifests himself in three personalities or three modes at a given time, right? That at any given time, God might reveal himself either as the Father, as the Son, or as the Holy Spirit. No. <laughs> Here in this text, we have the Father, the Son, and Spirit present all at the same time, interacting with one another. This carries in the verse one of our chapter today, chapter four. The Holy Spirit descended and filled Jesus. It reads, and Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, a distinct person within the Godhead, the Spirit of God, not a force, but a person. And at this particular time, in bodily form, distinguishable from the Father and the Son. According to Mark chapter 1 verse 12, it was immediately after being baptized by John that Jesus is led into the wilderness. And here in this text, we see another example of Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture, literally in so many ways that I stopped counting at four and it just kept going and going and going. And so I just stopped. Um, but why is it important? for Jesus in this situation to have been driven out? Why was there this voice that was crying out in the wilderness about one who would go into the wilderness? And this isn't a metaphorical wilderness. This isn't a text that you can just take it and make it mean whatever you want. This is a, a literal wilderness. Um, in Mark's short summary, he mentions in chapter one, verse 13, that Jesus was in the wilderness with the wild animals. He was isolated from people some commentaries would say he was lonely, but I disagree because Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God before being driven out. He was filled, meaning that he was completely satisfied. He was satisfied in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the vindication that he received from the Father at his baptism. We all know that on earth there was none like Jesus, perfect in every way. He's the pinnacle of every subject in scripture. And so Jesus has his Job moment as he is tempted by the devil. I'm sure you all remember Job, right? We're going to read Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. 
The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan then, as we know, took everything away from Job in a failed attempt to cause Job to forsake God. But think about it. The devil has nothing to take away from Jesus. Luke in chapter 9, verse 58, he records, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so the devil, the tempter, puts Jesus to the test by offering him something. He offers him riches and he offers him glory. You see, the devil just isn't at work in the losing of things, in the trials, the tribulations, and in the temptations that we face in life. The devil is also at work in the receiving of things, which can also be trials, temptations, and tribulations. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life can all be yours. 40 days in the wilderness, like Moses was 40 days on the mountain in Exodus 24 and also in chapter 34. Or like Elijah's journey up the mountain in 1 Kings 19 verse 8. Here in Matthew or in Matthew 4, 1, it says Jesus was led up into the wilderness. It's important we catch that because we see a couple things here. We see the humanity of our Lord, the incarnate Son of God, never having a need for anything. After 40 days of fasting, Jesus was hungry. He was a real man. He was in a vulnerable position, and the devil doesn't waste any time. However, let's not get it twisted. God is always in control, even in crazy 2020, right? Nothing's a surprise to God. He doesn't get flustered. Yahweh is totally, always, completely sovereign at every time and in every moment. The conflict in the wilderness, just as the temptation of Job, wasn't initiated by the devil. Jesus was not passively being lured away into the wilderness by the evil one to be tempted. The initiator was not the devil, but the initiator was God. Luke 4.1 says, when Jesus returned from the Jordan, he was led by the spirit in the wilderness. In Mark's parallel account, we see the verb that he uses for immediately is used 17 times and oftentimes is used to speak of things like exorcism because a stronger word needed to be used and sent out. They needed a word that expressed to be impelled or to be driven out. That's the word that's used as Jesus is led into the wilderness. Now this was of divine necessity. Jesus wasn't reluctant to go. This is Jesus on the offense going to confront the devil. In verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now I want you to notice that this temptation begins with an attack against the truth. If you are the son of God. You know this is my favorite subject. 
got a whole podcast on it because there's so much to talk about concerning the divinity of Christ. But the devil questions it. This old serpent knows no new tricks. Mocking Jesus like we would see in chapter 23. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Like Adam, Jesus is confronted by the serpent and tempted to doubt God. But how is this an attempt to get Jesus to doubt God? Well, remember 40 days ago, right? The father spoke from heaven, not only announcing his pleasure in his son, but he says, you are my beloved son. Not only does the father affirm the divinity of the son, the devil does as well. He doesn't doubt that Jesus can do these things that he's asking, right? He just wants to cause disruption within the Godhead. And that's a problem because God's will is accomplished as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work in harmony to that end. If the devil can somehow get Jesus and his humanity to compromise his mission on earth, he can keep from his destruction being solidified at the cross. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Which obviously means if he can do it, he's the Son of God, right? But just as the demons tremble in the presence of Christ, knowing their days are numbered, the devil also knows the power and the authority that Jesus has. And we know later he displays his ability as he multiplies bread. But then he points to the fact that he is the bread of life that came down from heaven. And it's not for this temporary nourishment of the body, but for eternal nourishment for the soul. But our Savior here, tired and hungry after 40 days in his humanity, having a body of flesh and blood that desires food. Now, when you don't eat, your body starts to get low on glucose. It causes low blood sugar and you don't have the energy that you need. You feel sluggish. You feel weak. Right. It makes it hard for you to concentrate because your, your blood and your brain is deprived of the fuel that it needs so you can think straight. One article I read says it can be hard to think about anything but food when your brain and your body is starved for energy. Not great for things like productivity at work. Socializing with your friends or generally being comfortable and content. Jesus being content, he was fully satisfied by being filled with the spirit. He responded the way that Adam should have in the garden. Did God really say Jesus responds with what God actually said in verse 4. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's pretty interesting that he used that text. Because Jesus here is remembering the experience of the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 1 through 3. But is it a coincidence that this quotation is a reference to Israel's wilderness experience? Is it a coincidence that Jesus uses this text that reminds Israel that they should have their trust in the Lord and God, we should have our trust in the one who provides the manna, not the manna itself? Reminding them to trust in the Lord, leading them. And here we have Jesus being led by the Spirit of the Lord, his manna in the wilderness. I just love the unfolding of redemption that we see in Scripture, these parallel accounts of Job and Jesus, of Adam and Jesus. You have Moses and Jesus, Elijah and Jesus, and here you have Israel and Jesus. Let's read it, Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. 
And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now think about it. If Jesus does what the devil asks him, we wouldn't be able to possess the land that the Lord promised us. Jesus is sent into the wilderness for 40, not for 40 years, but 40 days. And he was humbled just as the Israelites was because he came down from heaven in humility. He was tested as Israel was in their wandering, but not to see what was in the heart of Christ, rather to display the purity of his heart and the absolute sufficiency of his relationship with the father and with the spirit. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. That sounds familiar, right? The devil wanted a sign. Matthew chapter 12, we read about the Pharisees. They said, teacher, we want to see a sign. Remember that? But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it but of the prophet Jonah. No wonder Jesus says they were of their father, the devil, right? The one who tempts us with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Verse 5, Luke chapter 4. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I think this is the most interesting temptation of all of them. Um, and it's not funny, but I think here we see the authority that the devil has, this power, this ability that he has, and the audacity that the devil has. We see all of it here on full display. And so he takes Jesus to the top of this mountain, according to Matthew's account, and he offers him the world for a small fee. All Jesus has to do is worship him in return. Doesn't that sound familiar? All Jesus has to do is sell his soul and the world is his. How many stories have we heard about the entertainment industry offering the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life all in exchange just for your soul? Yet for some reason, we believe just because somebody has it going on that they've been blessed by God. Just because we see someone with a successful ministry, we believe that God is moving and this person must be anointed. We are so drawn to these outward things and we're blinded to what's behind it all. Blessings only come from obedience to God. However, the devil has power to give you these things that belong to his kingdom on earth. You can have anything your heart desires. You just have to sell your soul and it will be to your destruction. But also for the believer, we can have anything our heart desires as well. Because we no longer have the same desires. Our desires are now his. And we pray for his will to be done. And he gives us all that we ask for. But we see here the audacity of the devil. That he would tell his creator. Jesus created all things. And he's telling his creator to bow down and to worship him. 
I don't think it can get any more blasphemous than that to offer back to God what he created. To offer back to God a kingdom that he's been given temporary authority over. Offering to Jesus what he would reclaim after his death and his resurrection. <laughs> All power and glory has been given to Christ in his resurrection right now. And one day every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And they will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. They will bow down in obedience, paying homage to Jesus. But maybe, the, maybe Satan thought that he could reverse the curse. Maybe he can get Jesus to bow down so he can crush Jesus under his feet. The devil knows this and so he makes this attempt to thwart the decree of God. And unlike Adam... Unlike humanity, as we pursue the things of this world, Jesus answers again with the word of God. He says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. I just have some questions. Has God's word become your thought process? When you hear, did God really say? Or you can have this if you just loosen your grip on your personal beliefs. When the world puts you in a social or political box because of the color of your skin. And when you look into the mirror and see how wretched you are, if not for Christ, what's your response? Is it is what was written, right? Is your response, thus saith the Lord, right? We don't hide God's word in our hearts just for head knowledge. We hide it in our hearts for application, for real life. Jesus is in a battle against the devil and he pulls out the sword. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so the question is, what's your defense? When you're being tested, what do you take hold of? There's only one thing that has the power over the deceptive words of the devil, and that is the word of God. And Yahweh alone is worthy of worship, and him only shall we serve. This is a basic Christian truth. This is a ba basic truth in general that needs to be heard. Scripture says that you should teach them diligently to your children. And when you talk of them or and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When you look, are you looking through what was written? Is God's word written on the door of your heart and in your house? What are you letting in? Do you have the sword of the spirit to, to fight off the darkness of the devil or is your gate empty or wide open? What are you letting in? But if you didn't notice, these verses come directly after the Shema in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. That the Lord God is one and him alone shall we serve. The second response Jesus gave comes from verses later, right after the Shema, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear you shall not go after other gods the gods of the people who are around you for the lord your god is in your midst is in your midst is a jealous god lest the anger of the lord your god be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth back to luke chapter 4 the devil doesn't give up he makes another attempt but this time he does it with a twist in verse 9 and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God again, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. 
And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some commentaries say that the ordering found in Matthew is actually how it unfolded. And at times, Luke's account is the material is ordered logically rather than chronologically. Um, if that's true, this would serve as an example because the devil tempts Jesus twice and the Lord responds both times with the word of God. On the third temptation, the devil quotes scripture to Jesus. If the scripture is what's keeping Jesus from falling, maybe using scripture against Jesus is the way to get him. Right. This is something, again, that we see the Pharisees do. Right. They try to get Jesus to slip up. They try to find a reason that they could accuse him. And so they plotted about how to entangle him in his word. And remember, they questioned him about taxes and Jesus didn't respond the way that we want him to respond. I don't think anybody likes to pay taxes. Right. But Jesus was aware of the malice in their hearts. And he says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? It's also interesting that we're not to put God to the test. <laughs> but he says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Then the Sadducees asked the question about in the resurrection, who would be the husband of this widow? And if you remember, they built this question up off of the words of Moses. <laughs> And Jesus responds the way that you respond to the devil and his children. Have you not read? And it happens to us, right? It's, it's funny how people who hate the Bible, all of a sudden they become scholars just so they can further display their hatred of God and his people. They say stuff like the Bible promotes slavery. The Bible promotes the mistreatment of women, right? The Bible says you shouldn't eat shellfish. God is love, right? Thou shalt not, you know, Thou shalt not judge all these different things that they want to pull from scripture, right? All to sow doubt in your mind and to question, did God really say? Satan again challenging Jesus to prove that he's the son of God, blaspheming Jesus. Blaspheming the spirit as he purposely isolates scripture from its inspired context. And also committing blasphemy against the father to question the statement of whether or not he is the son of God. One commentary makes a note worth reading, quote, the point is not that God could not have rescued him, but that such an act would trivialize the power of God and his care for those he loves. Moses reminded his own contemporaries of their violation of this principle. When on the way to Sinai from Egypt, they had questioned whether or not God was with them. The evidence they demanded was a miraculous supply of water rather than trusting God to provide it in his own way, probably through natural springs and wells. They insisted on a supernatural intervention, one designed not so much to provide physical nourishment as to satisfy spiritual curiosity. Though displeased with their carnality, God nevertheless allowed water to issue from a rock, a miracle that gave rise to the place named Massa, which means testing, end quote. The only way we can fail a test is to embrace something other than the promises of God, to entertain something other than what was written, to listen to the whispers of the serpent instead of that still small voice of the Lord. Jesus was hungry here in a vulnerable state. He teaches us the priority of nourishing the soul over our flesh. Jesus teaches us that God is all satisfying and God alone is worthy of worship. And we should never put him to the test. 
And here we also learn that Jesus is the true Israel. He did what they failed to do time and time again, to trust God at his word and not follow after other gods. They went into the wilderness and never made it to the promised land. Only their children got to see it. Jesus also went to the mountaintop and Jesus went into the wilderness for us. And because of that, we will see the promised land. Because of Christ, the devil and his schemes will not prevail. We are victorious in Jesus. And so we sang this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And finally, verse 13, chapter 4 of Luke. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I just want to note here that it was the devil that tempted Jesus. It says when the devil had ended every temptation. Jesus being perfect cannot be tempted from within as we are. We are tempted by things because we're sinful and we have a sinful desire in our hearts for sinful things. Jesus was tempted by the devil to lust with his flesh. He wasn't tempted by his own flesh to lust. We are tempted by our eyes because it's fueled by the desire for things that others have. And so we covet. And so if we're on that mountain in Jesus situation, we're going to turn that stone into bread. We want the things that others have. We covet those things. But Jesus didn't have those desires in his heart. Not to mention, he owns all of those things already. But for centuries, Christians have gone back and forth about Jesus's ability or inability to have sinned in this situation. But allow me to settle this once and for all. May we never look to God through the, through the lens of humanity, but through the lens of what he has spoken in Scripture. God who has declared the end from the beginning, which means nothing slips through the cracks. There's no cracks in God's plan. And what has the father spoken concerning his son? Whoever looks to Jesus will have eternal life. You will for sure be saved. There's no doubt on the part of God about his provision. If Jesus could have sinned, that also means that the father doesn't know all things because there will be a possibility that he would need a plan B. <laughs> If so, everything he promised would be in jeopardy. Every sacrifice and tradition in the Old Testament would be to no effect because Jesus was the hinge of all of it. Every office that God raised up that mirrored Jesus, the prophets, the priests, the kings, the judges, all of it will be stripped from the substance that it has. Everything that gave it value was rooted in Jesus. If Jesus could have sinned, it would erase every letter of the covenant God made because Jesus is the guarantee that made it all possible. Right. All of scripture is a reflection of Christ. And so all the promises of God are yes and amen because of Jesus. If not, God would say maybe we'll see. Let's see if Jesus fails first. If not, I have to give you some another way to a yes. But all the promises of God are yes and amen. Amen. And so ultimately, this would also mean that God the Father offered a potentially unworthy sacrifice. We know the God of the Bible makes no mistakes. He has no potential. He's perfectly complete and infinite. There's no potential. He can't be greater. And so since he has no potential, there's also no potential for failure. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world means that Jesus would be without blemish and would without a doubt, no matter the circumstance, remain that way. Perfect in thought, word, and in deed. And so the devil throws in the towel, right? He's no match for Jesus. But he wouldn't give up. The text says he departed from him until an opportune time. 
Now, we know that this isn't the only battle between Jesus and Satan, right? Luke 22, we see that Satan here, he enters Judas. But little did he know that this motion would send Jesus into victory over him as he went to the cross to defeat him. <laughs> Remember, the serpent would bruise his heel, but Jesus would bruise his head, crushing Satan underneath his feet. Another example would be when, when Satan influenced Peter to derail the mission that Jesus was on. And Jesus responds, get behind me, Peter. No, he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> now, when you think about it, the life of Jesus is filled with opposition from the devil. Last week, Pastor Luke read through the genealogy and pointed out the significance of it for the Jews. The Savior was to come through this particular line, so it was important that they would lay this out so they knew that this was the Messiah to come. We mentioned this before. Remember, Joseph and his brothers, right? What the devil meant for evil, God meant for good, right? If there's no Joseph to interpret the dreams, Judah dies in the famine and we never get the Messiah. Think about it. If, if Goliath kills David, right? We can go so on and so forth. We can look at all these different scenarios. If the line is broken, Jesus never comes. But we see all of this opposition in Scripture, this attack against the people of God and God himself. Are we to believe that the devil wasn't influencing these attacks? There's a reason why the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 5, 8 to be sober minded, to be watchful, that your adversary, who is a real adversary, the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, seeking someone to sift as wheat. As we read in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we learn about our victorious king. We learn what it means to be steadfast. We learn how to stay on guard by being filled by the Spirit and His Word and by turning our eyes to Jesus, our example, and our hope. This teaches us the same way we have victory over death is the same way we have victory over temptation. And it's through faith in what God has spoken. And it's not a blind faith. <laughs> Rather, it is looking to Jesus who is the object of our faith. And because Jesus is the object of our faith, the reliability and sufficiency of Scripture is affirmed as he takes hold of it and he's victorious over the devil. And because Jesus was victorious over the devil, we can read scriptures and believe it like Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. It says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for these truths. Um, thank you for all that you've done for us to reveal yourself to us, to make a way of salvation for us, and that your plans and your promises are guaranteed, that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, um, that it was a plan in your mind so it was already done, that we can trust these things, um, that we can have victory over the devil in your word, that we have victory eternally over sin because Christ never failed as we do. And so Lord, I pray that your word will constantly be on our minds and in our hearts, um, not just in the good times, but in the times of struggle. And Lord, I pray you will get the glory as we hold on to what was written um, and not the lies of the enemy. 
For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.